Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the podcast, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. It's always kind of neat to see what people from the past thought the future would be like. Uh, there is a whole genre of thinking about what the future will be like. It's called science fiction, and it's one of my favorite genres, science fiction. It has deep roots, going all the way back to stories about golems and otherworldly entities, but most experts will usually place its genesis in the 1800s with authors like Mary Shelley and H.G. Wells. They basically created the template for what science fiction as we know it looks like. And the armchair historian, like me, or the commentarian, can easily see why the 1800s would be fertile ground for the birth of modern speculative fiction. The world was changing. There was an industrial revolution that was sweeping Europe and North America. Parts of the world that were once blank spaces on the map were being filled in. Japan, where we were in the last two episodes, that was in the throes of the Meiji Restoration, one of the most intense and interesting modernizations the world has ever seen. Uh, the future, obviously, was going to be extraordinarily different. And just like today, the Victorians, they loved to speculate on what the future held. It's a lot of fun to look at illustrations and prognostications from the 1800s and early 1900s about how technology would advance. And there are all kinds of pictures, some were maybe serious and some were maybe just in jest or in fun, that picture what the future will hold in the 20th century or 21st. They're Victorian-era illustrations that show airships, blimps, ornithopter-like personal flight devices. There's one postcard I found that had a flying fire department and also all manner of automatons that can do jobs for you, like a barber made of various arms and servos and gears and other moving parts. And again, I think that most of these illustrations, they are not so much serious predictions, but were more idle dreams of fantasists. But that doesn't make them any less fun. And I'll link to a few examples over on interestingtimespodcast.com. Go ahead and take a look at them. Being wrong about the future is not something that stopped in the 1800s. Being wrong about the future, that is a grand tradition. And it's also especially relevant for us now in 2016 because we live in the future. Those years that start with 2-0, for a long time, those were just nebulously futuristic for a lot of people, and now we are actually passing them up. We are seeing years that were featured in movies, in TV, in books, and we are experiencing them, and we are passing them. So today, I want to look at the modern version of those old Victorian postcards with blimps and airships and automatic barbers. I want to do a timeline of years from science fiction that we have passed up in real life and talk about how the predicted year meshed with, or didn't mesh with, the actual year. First up, 1984. I almost didn't put 1984 on this list, because in George Orwell's novel, it's somewhat ambiguous about whether or not the action actually takes place in 1984. The protagonist, Winston Smith, he thinks it's 1984, but he also knows that the government controls the media and all information. That is something that he's intimately familiar with because he works at the Ministry of Truth, which is concerned with lies, 
and his job is to censor and alter old newspapers so they better conform to the reality of the present day. So, in 1984, it is only 1984 to the best knowledge of the protagonist. And the book also contains some alternate history elements, so I don't think that Orwell wanted it rooted too much in actual history, or wanted it to be too much of an actual prediction. He was writing an allegory, and a cautionary tale. He was writing something about a possible future, rather than the future. Nevertheless, the setting of 1984 actually seems sort of plausible. Surveillance equipment all over London? Well, we actually have that. Two-way television? We also actually have that. Totalitarianism? We also have that, though not in the UK. I don't think Orwell would have liked being right. Next up, 1993. According to Star Trek, 1993 saw the outbreak of a worldwide eugenics war that threw the planet into chaos and eventually saw the emergence of Khan Noonien Singh, who took over a good chunk of the Earth. The original Khan episode is kind of funny to watch because Khan and his various superhuman cohorts are referred to again and again as a group of people from the 1990s. And when they emerge from their, you know, cryogenic space pod things, they are for some reason not wearing a whole bunch of, you know, plaid and Nirvana t-shirts. So, obviously 1993 did not see the outbreak of a gigantic eugenics war that had Ricardo Montalban taking over a giant chunk of the Earth. And I've always thought that this was sort of a weird thing to be on the Star Trek timeline. Eugenics is a pseudoscience which posits that the human species can be improved by selective breeding. And it's all about having fit people get together and make more fit people and preventing those who are perceived to be inferior from reproducing at all. It is a complicated and frightening topic, and I will probably devote a proper episode to it at some point. But if eugenics seems like the kind of thing that Nazis would have been into, well, you are right. Uh, Hitler did not invent eugenics. That dubious honor goes to an American named Friedrich Osborne. But he did incorporate a lot of eugenics ideas into his political ideology. And I've always found it weird that Star Trek, a show all about, you know, hope and science and logic and stuff, gave a certain amount of credence to this Hitlery pseudoscience. In the fictional universe of Star Trek, eugenics actually works. It gave us Khan Noonien Singh. And if an angry, scenery-chewing Ricardo Montalban doesn't count as a Superman, then I don't know who truly qualifies. Also, Star Trek is famously a utopian vision of the future, and the Federation doesn't have any poverty or inequality and the like, but again, that timeline of getting there is pretty dark. I already mentioned the eugenics war of 1993, and in 2053, we're due for World War III that will end with a nuclear holocaust. Then there's a 10-year period called the post-nuclear terror. Then in 2063, Zephram Cochran makes first contact, and, you know, that'll be fun. But we're probably off course because, obviously, Ricardo Montalban did not take over a good chunk of the Earth. Next up, 1997. According to Escape from New York, 1997 saw Snake Plissken invade Manhattan, which had been turned into a gigantic superprison and rescued a president of the United States. In that movie... Crime in the U.S. has risen by over 400%. So America decides to do the only logical thing and turn its biggest city into a city-sized super prison. I've never been to New York. 
I hear it's a lot like Tokyo, but smaller. But turning the biggest city in the United States into a super prison seems impractical, to say the least. The gigantic amount of not-in-my-backyard resistance that such a civil works project would generate would, by itself, probably make it politically untenable. So Escape from New York looked kind of different from actual 1997. Continuing further into the 90s brings us to 1999, the year that's also a print song. Space, 1999, is not a show that is really watched anymore, and with good reason. It had a lot of the trappings of space opera like Star Trek, but it was no Star Trek. It wasn't even Battlestar Galactica, the old one. It wasn't even Blake 7. It wasn't even Red Dwarf. The show took place, obviously, in 1999, and in the show, Earth had established a permanent base on the far side of the moon. And obviously, we did not have a moon base in 1999. Now, note here, the far side of the moon is not the dark side of the moon. The far side of the moon gets just as much light as the near side of the moon. It's just, we can't see it. So it's not dark. The whole thing is equally light and dark, just like Earth. So the show was maybe a bit too optimistic, given that Space 1999 was made in 1977. So they were only distancing themselves from a space-faring, moon-dwelling future by 22 years. And that seems a touch overly optimistic. But then again, it is conceivable that a human being in the 20th century could have read about the Wright brothers as a young child and then about the moon landing as an old person. So great technological progress can happen within a single lifetime. But moon bases? That's a big ask. More interestingly than bad Star Trek knockoffs, though, is Strange Days. That also takes place in 1999, specifically on December 31st, 1999. And Strange Days, it's a cyberpunk-inspired film by Catherine Bigelow, who's best known for making The Hurt Locker, and is less well-known for making Point Break, one of the greatest movies of all time. Strange Days is all about hardware that allows people to experience the memories of others, and Rafe Fiennes solves a high-profile murder in L.A. with a plot that draws on a lot of the racial tension and rioting and civil strife from early 1990s L.A. It's a fascinating and kind of weird chunk of 90s ephemera, and even though it was obviously wrong about what 1999 would be like, we do not have stuff that allows you to see other people's memories, I still highly recommend it. Strange days. Check it out. Next up, 2000. Remember when the year 2000 sounded like the future? Yeah. Death Race 2000 is a 1975 movie about a dystopian United States where seemingly everything revolves around deadly race car events. The movie is... it's okay. And it is sort of notable for being one of Sylvester Stallone's first movies. So, in 2000, the U.S. didn't descend into a race car-centric nightmare. But, you know, there are worse futures. More significantly, though, 2000 was the setting of Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, an 1888 novel about a guy who falls asleep Rip Van Winkle style and then wakes up in 2000. I read Looking Backward when I was a political science major because it was an important and popular document about early American socialism and progressivism. In Looking Backward, the U.S. of 2000 has been turned into a socialist utopia, and all of the economic and political problems of the 1800s have more or less been eradicated. So it's pretty much the opposite of Death Race 2000, both tonally and politically and optimistically. 
It's true that a lot of the problems of the 1800s have been solved. The abolition of slavery and child labor, women can vote now, uh, all that stuff comes immediately to mind. But obviously the 21st century is not a worker's paradise of perfect quality. However, Edward Bellamy did predict things like debit cards and escalators. So he did have a few hits among all the misses. And Looking Backward is often held up as a science fiction novel that, that was actually pretty on the mark in terms of its tech predictions. So I'd say check it out. It is kind of didactic in a lot of places, uh, kind of like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle is, but without the body horror. Uh, and yeah, if you want to read an early science fiction book where a lot of the stuff that was science fiction actually exists now, pick it on up. Next year, 2001. Obviously, the most high-profile fictional future to happen in 2001 was, well, 2001 A Space Odyssey. 2001 came, and it went, and we did not have space stations as extensive as the one in the film. We did not have commercial spaceflight or moon bases or AIs as advanced as how. We do have an international space station, though, and we have Siri. I guess that's close. But I find the overly optimistic tech in 2001 A Space Odyssey to be kind of charming, actually. What's really striking to me about 2001 is that in that movie, the Cold War is still going on. And the film doesn't make a really big deal of it, but it's just taken for granted that even in the spacefaring future of, of intelligent computers and missions to Jupiter, the U.S. and the USSR, they're still at odds. Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick, they could foresee HAL, they could foresee spaceships, they could foresee aliens bequeathing intelligence, and then whatever it is at the end, onto humanity, but they couldn't foresee the end of the Cold War. So a better, more accurate prediction about how the Cold War would play out came from political scientist and historian George F. Kennan, who way back in the 1940s, in a fairly well-known article in Foreign Affairs, predicted that Soviet communism would collapse as a result of its own internal and inherent contradictions. He said that the United States and the West, they didn't need to militarily engage the Soviet Union, they just needed to prevent it from spreading and contain it, and eventually it would fall apart on its own, and he was absolutely right. By the time we actually send human beings to the actual outer reaches of the solar system, the Cold War will be a distant memory. In some ways... It already is. And hopefully our computers will be slightly more friendly than HAL. Next up, 2010, which is the sequel of 2001, and supposedly in 2010, we make contact with aliens. We didn't. Next, 2012. The ending of The X-Files was really disappointing, and the big reveal at the end was that aliens were going to invade Earth in 2012. That didn't happen. Or did it? Maybe there are aliens. Maybe they did show up in 2012. Maybe they're all around us and we can never know. Or maybe it was prevented or maybe the aliens got distracted and, you know, got lunch somewhere. Who knows? It'll be interesting to see how the new X-Files series works around this. Last year on the list, 2015. As everyone who was on the internet last year knows, Marty McFly and Doc Brown time-traveled to 2015 to find a world of flying cards, hoverboards, and 3D Jaws sequels. Last year on October 21st, the day that they were supposed to visit, I did see a guy walking around downtown Portland in full futuristic Marty McFly regalia, and I respected that. That was great to see. But that's not what I really want to talk about. Nope. According to Neon Genesis Evangelion, a Japanese cartoon show from the 1990s, 2015 was supposed to be all about 
giant robots punching giant alien monsters. Evangelion showed us a 2015 with huge cybernetic fighting machines, improbable and impractical laser guns the size of skyscrapers, entire cities that can be moved underground in the event of giant monster attacks, and creepy clone children. Did 2015 have any of those things? Nope. None. Reality can be disappointing. And earlier this month, January of 2016, we supposedly saw the inception date of Roy Batty, the main replicant from the film Blade Runner. Roy Batty is probably one of the best androids of film of all time, and happy late birthday, Roy. So it seems that real life constantly falls short of science fiction when it comes to transportation and artificial intelligence. We don't have interstellar travel, and we don't have robot friends. But one thing that science fiction has failed to predict again and again is changing social roles and changing information technology. For example, when I was in middle school, I read Isaac Asimov's amazing and wonderful Foundation series, and at one point was taken aback by a reference to Housewives. This was a book that took place in the far future, and Earth was a distant memory bordering on myth for much of humanity. In the Foundation series, Earth might as well be Atlantis. Certainly such a society would have some people who stayed at home and performed domestic duties, but the use of the term housewife seems strange to me because it is so tied to the mid-century United States, and taking a very specific role from a very specific time period in a country and porting it over to an interstellar empire seemed a little bit naive. Likewise, Star Trek, for all of its progressivism, didn't predict a normalization of LGBT relationships. There's one episode in Deep Space Nine where Dax kisses another woman, but that's about it. Uh, there is a lot of science fiction that does deal with changes in social order. The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin comes immediately to mind. But generally the stuff that gets into movie theaters just ports over the existing social hierarchy and arrangement into the future or space or whatever. In real life, we are light years ahead of the fictional future. In real life, we see advances that much of science fiction never saw coming. Uh, I do want to give a shout-out to Babylon 5, one of my favorite sci-fi shows, for accurately predicting the normalization of gay marriage, though. Good job, Babylon 5. And also communication technology. Most science fiction didn't predict the existence of a global information network that makes the Library of Alexandria look like the back room of an airport Walden Books. Much of our fiction was all about how we'd move faster, how we'd move farther. We'd have starships, flying cars, moon bases, Victorian ornithopters. But that's not how it played out. Transportation technology is better, yes. AI is better, yes. We do know more about space, yes. But Really, the most remarkable thing about the future we live in, and we do live in the future, is that communication has improved. Instead of being thrown across the stars, we are now more tightly intertwined with each other on our own planet via the internet. We know each other more. We know more. We are, I dare say it, a bit wiser than our ancestors. I'll take that over a hoverboard or a flying car any day. If you have questions, comments, if you want to yell at or compliment me, whatever, uh, go to Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. 
click the like button and say things. Or even better, go on iTunes, give us a rating and give us a review. And I do read all of those. I love hearing from you guys what you think of the show. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, at Joe Streckert, and on Tumblr, joestreckert.tumblr.com. This show is entirely listener-supported. It is supported by our generous and wonderful Patreon patrons. So if you want to support the show, and I hope you do, go to interestingtimespodcast.com, click on the support link, and sign up for a monthly donation. Would really appreciate that. Thank you guys very much for listening. Back next week with more stuff about not the future, history, because this is a history podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye.